Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Desert Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this chart cast is Russell A. Berman, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Walter A. Haas Professor in the Humanities at Stanford University. He is also a member of Hoover's Working Group on Islamism and the International Order. The title of his talk is The Spiral of Disorder, Europe, Russia, and the Middle East, and the Prospects of a New Foreign Policy, and it was recorded on March 16th. 2015. So very grateful to John Raisian who invited me here. I'm happy to be here on this beautiful day, this beautiful place. Um, but unfortunately, I have a very difficult task. Um, uh, Corey Shackey is a very hard act to follow, uh, not only because of the depth of her knowledge and the quality of her presentation, but also because today, unfairly, she got the good story to tell. She got the story to tell of how a scruffy, revolutionary set of colonies turned into a world power promoting democratic values. She brought us up to World War I. One could extend that arc, World War II, the victory in 1945, which, of course, initiated the decline of the British Empire with the independence of India in 1948. But then, following that arc a little bit further, 1989, the victory with the opening of the Berlin Wall, and 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union. I spend most of my time thinking about Germany, so that Berlin Wall moment is especially important to me. But that's really an incredible story, an incredible narrative of uh, these United States. Some people thought that with 1989 or 1991, the end of history had come about, that there would be no more significant ideological conflicts. Well, September 11th taught us differently. And I think a lot about the culture, politics, and transformations in these years since the collapse of the Soviet Union to today. And what I'm particularly interested in is uh, this afternoon is to talk about where we are in this uh, world disorder uh, in, um, in these, um, at, at the current moment. What are the foreign policy challenges that this uh, country faces, that the world faces, and what are the prospects for a new foreign policy in a, in a new administration? So what I'm focusing on are three areas, Europe, Russia, and the Middle East. Uh, each one involves a particular set of, uh, set of uh, contradictions and challenges to American power. And I want to begin briefly, though, with a, a few remarks on some broader framework. First of all, when I talk about what um, uh, the United States might be able to do or what the Obama administration has failed to do, I don't, I don't um, subscribe to the um, model of thinking according to which the United States can solve all problems or that all problems are the fault of the United States. Those are two flip sides of a misperception. There are limits to our power. There are, there are ways to magnify our power through alliances. There are ways to deploy our power more effectively than others. But in the end, it's not all our fault, nor can we solve it all alone. What's peculiar about the current moment, though, is that it would seem that the administration has set its chips on a strategy of retreating from power, of reducing the American footprint around the world. Part of that may, in fact, have reflected a war, uh, war weariness in the public after the uh, long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't, uh, I don't uh, believe that this was just cooked up in the White House somehow. To some extent, I believe it reflects elements within the Democratic Party that are fundamentally anti-imperialist in their own terminology. Their model of foreign policy is retreating 
uh, from American commitment around the world. In any case, whatever the cause, there's been a noticeable uh, pullback in efforts by the US government to project its power in various uh, conflict situations. And we should be prepared to take an honest assessment of what this retreat from power, what this retreat from foreign policy, what this retreat from various theaters around the world has led to. Um, there's at least one um, depiction of the predisposition of this administration to address adversaries by making unilateral concessions in the hope that through that, through that friendly face of um, retreat, one would be able to win comedy, peace, and friendship. I don't think there are any cases that bear this up. We can think of the um, concessions that we've made to Russia. I'll talk a little bit about those uh, in the course of my presentation. Uh, that certainly has not led to a uh, amelioration of the relationship between the United States and Russia. It's the consequence of retreat. But we should talk about America's role in the world. That is, America is the leading power in terms of economy, in terms of military might, in terms of values, in terms of hard power and soft power. We do have an enormous capacity. Um, in Europe, they say that Germany can't pretend to be Switzerland. In the Western Hemisphere, we ought to say the United States can't pretend to be on Honduras. Uh, we, can, we can do more than Honduras can, with all due respect to Honduras. Uh, and if we don't do it, we create a vacuum. And other powers will, will rush in to fill that vacuum, presumably with values that are not the same as, as our own. And that's why I'm going to look today at these, at these three arenas. Um, Europe, particularly Western Europe, this is my primary area of concern. Um, one of my books that was mentioned before is about anti-Americanism in Europe. Uh, I don't think Europeans are all exclusively anti-American. I think there's, in fact, a lot of philo-Americanism in Europe, especially in Eastern Europe. Uh, but there are also reservoirs of anti-Americanism in parts of Europe that certain politicians can um, call upon at times. And I think we may be entering another period where that's the case. With regard to Russia, uh, it's already come up in the Q&A after Corey's talk, and it's going to uh, come up in my talk as well. And then the Middle East. This is what looms large uh, on the horizon. Uh, tomorrow is the, are the Israeli elections. Um, very soon, we'll have some understanding of what the outcome will be of the uh, negotiations with Iran. Um, it seems like an awful lot is at stake at this, at this moment. So let me take you back a few years. Uh, this was during the, um, the uh, first Obama presidential campaign when he went to Europe, when he went to Berlin uh, to um, uh, present himself to burnish his uh, foreign policy credentials to demonstrate that he has um, international credibility and he was able to demonstrate this well. Here he was speaking at the victory column in the middle of um, uh, West Berlin. You may recall that he wanted to speak at the Brandenburg Gate and Angela Merkel wouldn't let him so he spoke at this, at this other venue. But it was an enormous crowd. He had an enormous popularity. In many ways you could say that this event contributed significantly to his election because this junior senator from Illinois turned out to have an, uh, an international appeal which 
itself appeal to an American public wary of seeing itself demonized in the streets of Europe, if you think back to those George W. Bush years. My point today is that President Obama had enormous personal capital. Uh, he had an enormous uh, credibility in Europe, the, out of which the Nobel Prize came. And I don't think he was able to use that well. He wasn't able to use it well to promote American interests or to promote Western values. Because uh, his foreign policy is, has, in Europe in particular, has been characterized primarily by absence. Now, this is a few years later. This is, this is seven years later, the recent demonstration after the Charlie Hebdo uh, terrorism in Paris. There was a demonstration of, of world leaders. You see uh, Francois Hollande in the middle next to Angela Merkel. Um, President of Mali is next to Hollande. And next to him is Benjamin Netanyahu. On the other side, there's uh, Mahmoud Abbas. So the Israelis and the Palestinians were there. And a whole slew of other European leaders. A whole slew of other world leaders. Right? Netanyahu and Abbas aren't European. But where was the United States? Uh, President Obama was in the White House that day and decided not to attend. Uh, he, we were represented at a much lower level by the American ambassador in France, so there wasn't total uh, uh, ignorance of the event, but subsequently the White House indeed conceded they should have sent someone higher level. And they could have sent someone higher level because Attorney General Holder, it turns out, was in Paris on the same day. Uh, he could have taken an hour to go there. Uh, Senator Kerry could have called off a trip to India and gone here instead. But I take this, uh, uh, this image, I've put this image here in my talk, not because I want to talk about Charlie Hebdo uh, extensively, although I'm certainly welcome to take questions, and, uh, questions on that point, but to, because it graphically illustrates American absence. Uh, the Obama administration has often presented its foreign policy in terms of a pivot to Asia. There's a certain credibility in that. One could say China is the rising power. We should address China emphatically. But when we look at what in fact has, but, has been done, it's hard to see much pivoting to Asia. It's hard to see much real action in that part of the world. Instead, I believe that the pivot to Asia is a quote, pivot to Asia, unquote, a rhetorical ploy in order to explain American absence, as you see here in the picture. Now, in this picture beyond that, these uh, leaders were taking an emphatic stance against, against terrorism, indeed against Islamist terrorism. Many of these leaders talk about it in those terms, not Washington, not the president. So, um, the first part of my talk is about our relationship to Europe. Um, the Obama election was in many ways intended by the American electorate to heal those transatlantic wounds from the, uh, from the previous administration. But I think in many, in many arenas, there's evidence of a drifting apart. A drifting apart in the way we address terrorism, uh, in the way the two sides address terrorism, a drifting apart, as we'll see, in terms of the <clears throat> um, prospective elections in, in Europe, <clears throat> and associated with that, uh, a kind of political instability and a potential for a rebirth of um, anti-Americanism. 
So at the same time as uh, America was underrepresented in the uh, march against terrorism in the streets of Paris, excuse me, uh, the French premier, Manuel Valls, uh, was uh, speaking out against terrorism. And he indeed speaks out explicitly about Islamist terrorism. He talks about Islamofascism. This is a vocabulary that is proscribed in Washington. Washington still accedes uh, to the notion that the major problem in the world is that Muslims around the world hate the United States, and that the way to do that is to uh, downplay the role of Islamism in the terrorist threat. Valls, instead, facing really much dire, much more dire uh, challenges within France and within the growing Muslim population in France, is prepared to take the bull by its horns and, and address the problem as it is. There's a radicalization that, un, that takes place within parts of the French immigrant population, particularly young unemployed males, who are then susceptible to radicalization through recruitment networks uh, for, for ISIS, for Al-Qaeda, and for other radical groupings. Valls can address it, but somehow the United States continues to fail to address it. Uh, the part of the problem is, as I've indicated, a, um, an ideological, religious, cultural orientation. But in the end, a whole lot has to do with, um, with economic opportunity. Because in much of Europe, there's a very slow growth rate, there's a high unemployment, uh, and as you can see in this chart, and I believe some of these graphs have been distributed to you at your, at your places, you know, once you get out of, um, once you get out of uh, northern Europe, effectively, unemployment rates uh, go up uh, very rapidly. Uh, Germany, Austria, the UK, around 5%, but you get to Belgium, France, Ireland, um, Italy, these uh, rates of unemployment are, 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 um, are growing um, larger and larger, and this hits the immigrant population um, disproportionately. Uh, that's where you have the reservoirs of individuals who can be um, recruited to go fight with ISIS in Syria, to come back with, uh, with, um, with, with weapon skills, and uh, become the so-called homegrown terrorists. Uh, this chart makes it even more graphic, because here you have not just the, um, the unemployment rate, but also the unemployment rate uh, for, for individuals under 25. So um, yeah, this is not meant to suggest age discrimination, but terrorists usually aren't my age. Uh, they're, they're usually young, and they're usually young guys. Uh, and look at these uh, unemployment rates. Uh, uh, even, in, even in France, you have... Um, what is that, close to 25% uh, uh, youth unemployment. That's France in general. Increase that for the immigrant population. That's the reservoir of, um, uh, for radicalization that uh, uh, is the source of the terrorist potential. This uh, radicalization also um, uh, feeds into a kind of political instability. Uh, as you know, in Greece, the Syriza party uh, won the recent election in January. This is a radical left party, uh, displacing a 
previous conservative government. Here you have a, a, a graph showing polling data leading up to that election. Uh, and you see how much the Syriza, that's the line at the top, the red line at the top, um, uh, outstrips its uh, conservative competitor, leaving everybody else uh, in the dust at the bottom, the many other parties. Uh, this has meant a government that is recalcitrant with regard to repayment and, uh, of, um, of its debts, uh, but also I think it's indicative of a radicalization that is um, spreading through uh, Greek society. Now, you could, you could uh, try to brush this aside. Greece is a tiny country. Its economy is really not that significant. It's marginal to Europe. Um, I think that if uh, Greece were pushed out of the EU, which is uh, what some advocate, it could become uh, prime plucking uh, for an um, uh, aspiration by Russia to uh, expand its sphere of influence into the Eastern Mediterranean. But let's talk about the Western Mediterranean for a second. Um, so this is Greece going up to the, um, this recent election. Uh, and this is Spain looking ahead to its December election. Uh, you see, um, so the blue line at the top is the, um, is the uh, conservative party that uh, forms the government right now. Uh, tracked by the center-left party in the red. But what's remarkable here is this uh, upswing of that, uh, not quite sure what color that is, uh, uh, maybe eggplant, uh, the, uh, that, that purple uh, uh, line going up. That's the Podemos party. That's the Greek version, that's the Spanish version of Podemos. That's the radical left party that uh, uh, has, has a chance of... Um, of uh, becoming the majority, or at least the second most powerful uh, party in the, in the Spanish parliament. So in the East and in the West, big unemployment, radicalization of the population. That radicalization goes hand in hand with an anti-EU and an anti-US sentiment. So, but those are, those are mar well, Spain isn't a marginal country, but now let's look at, at France. This is about the, uh, uh, projections for the next uh, presidential election in France. And what you see is that um, in, the, uh, in the top um, calculation, uh, Marie Le Pen, the leader of the National Front, has a good chance of beating out Francois Hollande as the next president of, of France. Now, a lot will depend on uh, the particular structure of the French election. There's a first round and a second round. It's the top two vote-getters in the first round who go into the second round. If it's Le Pen and the sitting president, you may have a national front candidate. This is not the radical left. This is the radical right. Uh, what this radical right has in common with those radical lefts, if you're following, is the same anti-EU and anti-US predisposition. Uh, now, if she runs against various conservative candidates, she, uh, she, it, it does not look at this point that she would win. But nonetheless, nonetheless, this is remarkable. The National Front, which for decades was a marginal, racist, radical party, polling 10, 12%, is now one of the big players in the French scene. 
This is not the same scenario as Syriza in, in, in Greece or Podemos in Spain, but it's cut from the same cloth. You have, an, you have a, a slow growth, high unemployment, radical ideology circulating, and that's going to lead to some political instability. Now, the island, or the fortress, that's better, the fortress of stability in Europe is Angela Merkel and, and Germany. Uh, this morning you heard from Kari uh, uh, more about Bismarck than I expected to hear at this, uh, at this conference. Uh, I think Angela Merkel is without a doubt the most successful German chancellor since Bismarck. Uh, that puts it in some historical context. Um, but uh, remember that in the last election, she lost her free market liberal coalition partner and is now in a coalition with the center-left Social Democrats. In the next election, 2017, it is, not, it is not impossible to imagine her losing that election and we end up with a center-left coalition that would include the Social Democrats, the Greens, and what is in effect the former Communist Party. Uh, at that point, you sure better hope that the United States is tapping the, the phone line of the German chancellor. Uh, it, they didn't have to do it with Merkel, but there's gonna be, it's going to be a very, very different game uh, if, um, if you have a center-left coalition, uh, particularly when we think about the challenges that Europe faces uh, on its eastern border. And this brings me to Russia. One of the, um, one of the um, big... Uh, agenda points of the Obama administration foreign policy has been, of course, the reset. This is, uh, this is what they tried, this is what they tried hard, and this is what they should be judged on. Uh, and let's see what that has meant. Let's see what it was, and let's see where it has brought us. Um, I talked about unilateral uh, concessions. Well, the, one of the first concessions was pulling back on the missile shield defense uh, that was supposed to be positioned in Eastern Europe uh, uh, notionally to protect Europe from Iran, but arguably also from, uh, from, from Russia. Uh, these were uh, very early in the um, Obama administration. In 2009, the United States unilaterally pulled back. There was no quid pro quo. There was no, you do this, you do, we do that. Just give up on that, pulling back. Uh, this, is, this contributed to an enormous um, credibility loss of uh, the United States, especially in that, um, uh, that, that band of countries that used to belong to the Soviet sphere. We, you, can't, you can't underestimate how deep the potential is for pro-American sentiment in countries like Poland. And you can't imagine how, you can't overstate how, how disappointed populations in those countries have been by what's, what was perceived already then as a sense of abandonment. Uh, and the, reason, the, the, the rationale for that sense of abandonment has only grown larger since. Uh, you may recall this moment, the, um, the uh, hot mic incident uh, when the president was speaking with Medvedev from, from, um, from Russia, and when he told him, um, believing that the microphone was off, that after the election, uh, I will have more flexibility. And um, Medvedev report, replied, I understand, I will transform, transmit this information to Vladimir. 
You can't make this stuff up. This really happened. This is world history. So this was prior to the, um, the, 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 uh, the recent election. Uh, the president was effectively promising greater flexibility, greater willingness to make concessions as soon as he was out of the hot seat of his own last election. The result, um, this is the, uh, this is, these are the fruits of the, um, of the reset. This is, this is what we've got. Uh, uh, now, whether this is a matter of, um, of uh, Putin and Putinism or whether it's a matter of um, Russian nationalism more broadly, that topic came up in the Q&A uh, this morning. When all is said and done, what you have is a, an invasion, a, uh, a, a rewriting of international borders by force in, in Europe, um, uh, something that uh, one didn't think was possible after 1945, what one certainly didn't think was possible after that fictional end of history of 1989. Uh, uh, the, uh, the annexation of the Crimea, that seems to be a done deal now. That's not even being contested. What's at stake is how unstable the eastern Ukraine will be allowed to be left. Uh, there has not been a robust uh, Western support, uh, re Western response to this at all. Um, but it's hard not to see the uh, Willingness of Russia to move in as a direct consequence of the of the reset. Um, you know, if there were, if if one were uh, attracted to historical analogies, one would have to talk about parallels between this Democratic Party and this Russia, and Democratic Party in the immediate post World War II era, and that Russia. Uh, because it's not just the Ukraine. Uh, there are uh, Russian. Um, Russian military aircraft that has been probing the space uh, above England, uh, just as there have been Russian submarines that have been uh, sighted in the waters off of Scandinavia. Uh, clearly, this Russian leadership is testing the West very aggressively. Uh, and uh, we, have, we have yet to see a firm response to this. Uh, in addition, what this Russian leadership has done is continued with a brutal crackdown on domestic opposition. This is a demonstration in Moscow uh, with regard to the assassination of Boris Nemtsov, uh, one of the um, um, leading liberalizing politicians, um, uh, very much actually a Kremlin insider as much as an outsider. Uh, 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 so he was, he was by no means a, uh, a pure Democrat. Uh, he was part of the, um, part of the, the political class, uh, shot down effectively outside of the Kremlin. Um, I have a, uh, a Russianist colleague who says that in, the, in, the, in her circles, this, is, uh, this assassination has begun to be compared uh, ominously to the 1934 assassination of Kirov which was uh, a similar moment of a charismatic, somewhat more liberal politician, although very much part of the apparatus, leading to the, um, the, um, the, uh, the stabilization of the, of the Stalinist regime. Now, Putin is not Stalin yet, but uh, the, uh, the 2010s aren't the 1930s either in terms of media and, and public awareness and public consciousness. Nonetheless, uh, 
um, what seemed to have been won in 1991, what seemed to have been won uh, with Gorbachev and Yeltsin, uh, seems to be ratcheting back into an authoritarian regime uh, that um, has a, an oligarchic character uh, where rule of law is undermined and where, um, and where uh, international aggression seems to be tolerated by the, by the population at large caught up in a frenzy of nationalism. What's also interesting, and this would be a topic for the, uh, for the, for the discussion period, is the ambiguity in the Western, now I think especially the, um, the, the European, the West European response to, uh, to, to Ukraine and to, and to Putin in general. Uh, in Germany, which is in the end the key player in this discussion, uh, there's a big wing of the of uh, civil society that goes out of its way to, as they say, understand Putin, to uh, give him the benefit of the doubt, to, um, to, to, to try to understand his side of the story rather than to recognize brute aggression as brute aggression. Um, when the Poles hear this, what they think of is the Berlin-Moscow axis and the anxiety that they might be crushed between these two, two powerful countries. So from Spain through Russia, now spiraling into the Middle East. Uh, why should we care about the Middle East uh, now that we have shale? Uh, well, there are a lot of reasons. Uh, oil hasn't gone out of style yet, so this is crucial to uh, international stability. What's more, a band of potentially failed states from Afghanistan all the way through um, Libya and um, and. Um, and Algeria has the potential to incubate countless terrorists uh, who are extremely mobile in today's globalized world. At the same time, if we recognize that U.S. power is indeed not infinite, that U.S. power is limited, that means that uh, we have to rely on allies. It's unclear why we should be in the business of alienating our longstanding allies. And then we have these front burner threats of ISIS and Iran. And that itself is a complicated, complicated um, chess game. Uh, I found this quotation um, from um, the New York Times. And I thought it was uh, precious enough to share with you. Uh, let me quote, although I hate to read from uh, PowerPoint slides. Uh, in the case of, this is New York Times speaking. In the case of Iraq, the American goal has been to leave a stable and representative government, avoid a power vacuum that neighboring states and terrorists could exploit, and maintain sufficient influence so that Iraq would be a partner, or at minimum, not an opponent in the Middle East. So that's the New York Times summarizing American goals 2012. And it continues laconically. But the, Amer the Obama administration has fallen frustratingly short of some of those objectives. I'd say all of those objectives. I'd say all of those objectives. One can debate, if one wants, whether the uh, invasion of Iraq was, uh, was right or wrong. That's a whole other talk. But the Obama administration inherited that. Uh, it also inherited a relative victory in Iraq. And my sense is that, in fact, it has squandered it through, uh, through aspects of its policy, through a peremptory uh, retreat, through a failure to negotiate a status of forces agreement, and so forth. A long discussion. That's Iraq. Uh, 
But here, what you see is the state of affairs today. Uh, the um, ISIS is terrible, it's barbaric, it's uh, cruel, it deserves to be defeated. ISIS is also uh, significantly a function of um, disaffected Sunni Muslims who see the Iraqi government that the Obama administration has left on its own as um, hostile to their own interests uh, and as uh, increasingly a puppet, a puppet government of Iran. Uh, so ISIS has swept through the, the Sunni triangle. That's the, it's the, gray, the light gray and the dark gray areas. In the north, you see the Kurdish areas. And if there's one good story that's come out of uh, all of this so far is that Kurdistan seems to be at least in part thriving as a, as a, um, as a vibrant economy and as an uh, increasingly uh, democratic state. But then you also see the, um, uh, the, the, the conflict in Syria between the areas controlled by the regime in the, um, in the pinkish color and the, uh, the other rebel forces in the, in the, uh, in the orange. Uh, to defeat ISIS is a crucial goal. To see Assad leave power is a goal that the Obama administration itself has, has, has set. But at the same time, we're, this is all being carried out in the context of Sunni-Shia conflict that maps onto the uh, expansion of Iranian influence. And this is, uh, this is the big game. So yes, let's defeat ISIS. ISIS is our enemy, but as Netanyahu said in Congress, the enemy of our enemy is our enemy. That is, the enemy of ISIS, Iran, is our enemy as well. Uh, Iran has, um, if anything, increased uh, domestic repression in, under, the, under the Rouhani regime, although he was, was, should, should have been, was counted as a moderate. The, um, the rate of um, executions of prisoners has increased under Rouhani. Uh, the, um, uh, and, and in the Iranian political discourse, there's increasingly um, blatant, uh, explicit reference to uh, Iran and its imperial ambitions. Then it's meant positively. Uh, uh, Netanyahu cited this in his speech, but this is actually a quotation from uh, discussions in, in Tehran where the boast is made that Iran now rules in four Arab capitals, in, in Baghdad, in Damascus, in uh, Sana'a, and in Beirut. So Iran, not an Arab country, boasting that it rules in those four Arab capitals. Uh, should we care about this? Yes, we should care about this. Uh, it will control, control the Straits of Hormuz. That's the oil calculation. And what's more, Iran remains a revolutionary regime. Iran remains a regime that is committed to overthrowing stable order uh, throughout the region and perhaps throughout the world. With this, uh, my final slide, uh, let me talk about um, what one could look forward to positively. Um, a lot of what I've said so far is a diagnosis of our current state of affairs that has been critical of aspects of American foreign policy. Uh, but uh, one way or another, there's going to be a new uh, president uh, in a couple of years. Um, 
what I think uh, touchstones for that foreign policy, for a new foreign policy would be, is uh, a much greater degree of comfort with the positive notion of American leadership that the United States can be a force for good in the world rather than a force for which we should apologize. Uh, second, a rebuilding of a substantive Western alliance that is a transatlantic alliance. Well, there are two parts of that. The transatlantic alliance, a much greater functioning with the Western European uh, countries. They are not a uh, military force to be reckoned with uh, any longer. Uh, but they are an economic powerhouse one way or another and uh, with uh, extraordinary influence throughout the world. Uh, those relations have frayed over um, uh, in, well, due to conflict perhaps in the Bush administration and due to negligence in the Obama administration. By the Western Alliance, however, I mean something bigger, not just uh, Western Europe, not just Eastern Europe, not just Europe, but also those countries that do not belong geographically to what one might mean by the West, but which have, for various reasons, internalized democratic values. On that list, that include, of course, Japan and, uh, and especially India, which is going to emerge as a, as a key player in this global great game. What the United States should support is uh, stability, uh, stability for the economy, stability for people's lives. Uh, what is it? Two thirds of the Syrian population has been uh, has, has is is on the move. The, the the country is in shambles. This is this is nothing that the world should uh, should tolerate. This is just wrong. Uh, we shouldn't have these kinds of this kind of change and warfare. Uh, we should have change. We should have reform, but it should be gradual and positive. Uh, and not violent and painful. That's what puts us at odds with Iran. Uh, and finally, we have to think this through in a framework that is much larger than I've been able to address in the limited time available me to me uh, this afternoon. Um, I haven't spoken much about uh, Asia, about East or South Asia, uh, certainly not about Africa, um, nor, about, uh, nor about Latin America. The, most interesting point there right now is A, two points, the absence of much of a Latin America foreign policy, and B, this uh, peremptory opening to Cuba that fits into the model of unilateral concessions without asking for anything on the other side. I'd have more to say, but I think that's all I'm going to say right now. Uh, thanks for your attention, and I'm happy for questions. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, and Stitcher. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Chris Dower. Thank you for listening.